Hey, everybody. Welcome to Why It Matters, the podcast for the dreamers and the driven who are changing the world their way. Back in 2011, Merck Andreessen said that software was eating the world. And it did. But now we're in the dawn of a new era in venture capital and Blue Ashva Capital, a firm based out of Singapore, is leading the way. Arpit Bansal, an entrepreneur turned venture capitalist who works at the firm, describes the transition as a shift in investing from bits to atoms. His firm invests in companies trying to improve aspects of our core human needs, like our health, food, energy sources, and financial stability. Throughout history, these sectors of the economy have been viewed as low-return impact investments, but Blue Ashva is proving that they are investments that come with an enormous impact. Before we listen to his story, everybody take a second to settle in, appreciate where you are, and take a deep breath with me. And now, off to the episode. And we are live. Arpit Bonsal, thanks for coming on to Why It Matters. Thanks for having me, Luke. It's great to be here. And um, we've formed a little bit of a relationship in the past few weeks. So I'm excited to get more into the weeds of what you do at your firm and how what you do has been impacted from what you've done throughout your entire life. Um, and so I would love to start off with a question about you um, and get the guests to know who you are. So why do you do what you do? What drives you? That's an interesting question. I think uh, business has always been something that I've been really interested by. Um, and this was actually, um, and I, I don't know if it's something about um, just growing up in this generation. I, I used to tell my friends that, um, you know, superheroes of the previous generations were um, you know, really kind of, you'd imagine like strong, muscularly built men who were doing crazy things, people who went to war, like those are the, the heroes of the, uh, are like maybe our parents' generations. But for us, it's kind of, we grew up with, um, at least you and me grew up looking at what Mark Zuckerberg did or what Steve Jobs did. And we kind of idolized these people who created the, the new world that we live in. And uh, that was something that I was always fascinated by. I used to read so many of these books um, about Elon Musk and about what, what Jobs did, so on and so forth. So I was always fascinated by business. And I always wanted to do uh, a startup. Uh, and I don't know if that was the right mindset, but I was like, I just want to do a company. I just want to see, see what it's like. Uh, when I got to college, um, I decided, you know what, it's time to at least uh, have, you know, try it out. Uh, so I, I started a company with some friends. Um, we were in the software development space and I didn't know how to do software development. So we kind of, <laughs> we launched a company and we're like, okay, we, we got to learn how to do software development. And since then, it was just been a self-taught journey on um, on programming. Uh, it took me on a really crazy journey on, um, you know, learning what it's like to build, really understanding software. Um, then we traveled to lots of hackathons. I think we'll get into that story um, over time, but uh, ended up, you know, building that business over a few years, um, shut it down because uh, we, you know, all of us decided to move on and do something else. And then I got into venture capital because I think it's, um, it's kind of one of the foundational blocks of um, 
the ecosystem as we as we know it today in terms of um, you know helping companies uh, raise capital and grow. And I always wanted to get into that, um, especially having done a business. I was curious to see what it's like to meet founders all the time and learn from their mistakes. Because I mean, I made a ton of mistakes, and I mean, I think that's natural whenever you do your first company. And as soon as that experience ended, I knew that I wanted to just be a sponge and absorb as much information as I could. And in the realm of business, being in venture capital is a great way to kind of meet different founders, uh, look at different business models, learn from their mistakes and their successes. And that's how I got into uh, uh, VC. And I think that's been a really, really uh, rewarding journey, both in terms of learning, exposure, um, in some sense, a reality check, uh, and, and so much more. I think the first thing you touched on is such a prominent phenomenon, especially with people in college and you and I both went to Babson and entrepreneurship school and this true idolization from us who are younger people in society with these crazy news headlines and Forbes coming out with the billionaires list. And it's like, this is who, you know, young, ambitious, men and women aspire to to be like to create change in society um, but i think that's a great insight um i would love to touch a little bit more on your experience in entrepreneurship um you mentioned that you were went into this field that you didn't have experience in and then kind of just taught yourself and from my experience short experience as an entrepreneur i think that a lot of it for me has just been about grittiness. And, you know, it's like, I probably don't know 90% of the things that I'm doing, but it's just about, you know, going on YouTube and figuring it out. How do you develop an app? Just look at a YouTube video, you know? <laughs> and so could you talk about like that experience for you, those first few stages of starting a business? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think the way it worked out for us is, I always wanted to um, learn how products were built. I mean, I'm growing up just using all these applications and being fascinated by them. Um, I always wanted to know how these, uh, all these products that we use uh, under the hood, how they operate. And the, I think the, the only thing that I'd really done, um, I used to do this prank in, in high school. Um, I did this really cool prank in high school once where um, basically it was around uh, college admissions time. Uh, this is 12th grade. Uh, and everyone's just waiting for their next um, uh, kind of result to come out or some people are still pl still applying. And uh, so one thing happened where everyone, for some reason, I mean, it's not surprising, I guess, was looking to go to MIT. I mean, a, a few kids, um, the really smart ones, uh, the top the creme de la creme, <laughs> right? And um, I had just learned how to edit websites, you know, just opening it up, right click, inspect, change up the text. <laughs> and I was so fascinated by it. So what I ended up doing is I opened up the MIT website and I went to their admissions page. And just on my laptop, I edited the, the HTML uh, code to just say, uh, not accepting admissions for uh, 2016. Yeah, that was, that was the first year of college for me. Yeah, so 20, 2016, something like that. I just changed that text. And of course, that was only on my laptop. Everyone else would see the live website page. But what I did was every class that I had that day, I would walk in put my laptop on the, the front, uh, the first row and just have it facing the door. So everyone who walked in no saw my way. laptop and so many people freaked out, just like they, they couldn't believe it. And now <laughs> as if that wasn't funny enough, ended up happening was this reached 
for somehow the college counselors in the school heard about this. And I don't know why none of them verified this fact, but there was like a whole crazy thing that happened. Like, wait, is MIT not accepting applications? And I was like, that, that rush of being able to do such a simple thing that got me into software. Um, and then as soon as high school was done and I knew I was going to Babson, that whole summer, I actually went on uh, Udemy and I just bought like 15 courses on like web development, iOS development, just a bunch of different things, all the things I had been curious about. So it was kind of like window shopping for education in a way. This is so cheap. And I was like, I'm just going to buy them in bulk and then do, do them over time. And I did. I ended up doing that. I got to Babson. Uh, you know, I met some people who were also interested in it. So we ended up just working together, doing courses. So I would do like college by day. And then at night, I would just kind of um, learn how to do websites or learn how to do um, apps and different, just different kinds of tools. So that kind of um, led me to understand that, first of all, Babson, while a great entrepreneurship school, has no, at least back when I was attending, didn't really have a place for people who were interested in technology to come together and collaborate. So then we ended up getting together, a few of my friends and I, and we launched Babson Code, which was the ba Babson's first tech club on campus student uh, club. Uh, and once we launched that, we got so much interest from students who are looking to start businesses uh, and wanted to build apps or website, but didn't really know how. I mean, the only option they had was they would go to next door, they would go to Olin College of Engineering, but I don't think the engineers really liked us. So, so that dynamic wasn't great, but I, I think Babson Code offered a great place for, for that. So when we started getting all this interest, uh, we realized that, okay, there's a need, you know, uh, there's uh, people who want to build businesses that have ideas. And we had just learned how to build different kinds of tools. So we thought, okay, why don't we launch a product development company? So that was the, the idea um, that we started with. Um, and once we launched, we got so much interest. We built some websites for professors and, um, you know, we just started with like uh, entrepreneurs on campus and then ended up scaling that business over time. Um, I would say the journey was, I mean, lots of, lots and lots of mistakes and, and ups and downs. I think everything from underestimating how much work it is to actually um, deliver good quality products. Um, you know, you think that as the client knows what they want, but I mean, really they don't uh, in a lot of cases. And even if they do actually having to do the, the work is, is not easy. Um, and moreover, the business model that we had created was actually I mean, in hindsight, it's really interesting business model, but very tough to execute. So to give you some context, a, a typical product development agency operates in the model that you, um, you have all your developers and designers, almost everyone who's working on a deliverable is on your payroll. So you're kind of, your capacity is maxed out at how many people you hire. And that's good in terms of you can manage them easily. You have easy oversight. But what's difficult about that is you've got high fixed costs and you have to, I mean, to stay aboard, you have to continue doing projects. And we were college kids. We didn't really have money to pay anyone's salary. So we kind of created this model, um, which is now getting really famous uh, of distributed development. And the whole idea was we're not going to have anyone on payroll. We're going to create a community of developers and designers all around the world who do good stuff and who are really good at what they do. Uh, and are looking for projects. So we ended up building this network um, of, I mean, by the end of it, about 300 plus developers and designers who we would, who we had all kind of trained in the way we build products. And what would happen is anytime a customer would come to us, 
we would say, okay, here's what you want. We would put together a team on the fly. So we'd have a backend developer in Uruguay, a front-end developer in London, a designer in, in Delhi, you know, something like that. And then the team would be, it would just be one Slack channel. That's for this project. So it was a really interesting business model, which allowed us to scale quickly, deliver uh, uh, projects without having to kind of be worried about how do we pay payroll for the next month. Um, so so in, in the beginning, it was great. We got so many projects scaled very quickly. We got a small office on campus under um, uh, Van Wickle, um, uh, which, which was awesome. Uh, and then we ended up kind of building it even further. We got an office in Boston. And before that, uh, and this is a really interesting story, which I think I'll hold off for later on. But um, through that journey, what we realized is that while you can have these developers internationally, right, and they're they're doing good work, and you don't have to pay payroll, but again, the oversight was just so challenging. And what ended up happening was anytime a developer would be MIA, let's say, I mean, they're in first of all in different time zones, which was tough to manage. Second, if for some reason they don't do their work, we have no accountability. Right? What would what ended up happening quite often was I would end up developing the product at the end of the day. Like I'm sitting, I'm doing my college work during the day and I'm staying up basically the whole night programming, trying to make sure that this client gets their product out. And that happened so many times that I just got so tired of the whole process. Um, and then the whole thing was just kind of, all my energy was just gone in that process. So I think there's lots of learnings that happened regarding how difficult it is to build a business, what it's actually like to build a scalable business model. Um, and, and yeah, I think just so much more, but I'm so grateful for this journey uh, from everything that happened that not only do I now know how to build good products, having gone through the grind, but I appreciate the time it takes to build good products. And whenever I see something in my hand, I see a good application, I see a good website, I see, uh, you know, good software. I appreciate that because I know the grind that it takes to actually put something out there in the world. So, um, I know it's a long winded response to, uh, uh, and yeah, but, but that's just what, uh, entrepreneurship is like. I think you just have to hustle. You have to get it done and, uh, you only get time to reflect after the fact. I don't think uh, it's tough to be in the moment and, and think about what you're doing wrong. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think it's it's a good long response because it's a it's a good long journey as you describe. There's so many ups and downs, blood, sweat, and tears, the wins, the the losses every day. Um, and so with that journey that you had, could you talk about how that initial journey? was then manifested into some of the things you did later. Um, so you were part of two hackathons that were both quite prestigious um, and did very well in both of them. Um, so could you give a description of what you were doing there? Yeah, uh, so hackathons are really cool uh, competitions or programs or events, uh, if I may. So I had never heard of what, a hack, uh, of what a hackathon was. At least I got to Babson and one of my friends introduced me to the concept and I looked it up and I was like, okay, this is cool because you get 24 hours, you're put together in a team or you might have a team, but most people go there and they, they, they meet the people for the first time. So you're meeting, you're kind of working with strangers in a way. You have 24 hours to not only think of an idea, but to build a functional prototype. And it's not just something that works in like a design mock-up. This is a full-blown product that you have to build in 24 hours and actually show it to the judges and you have to make a business case for it. So it's kind of the ultimate crunch. And I, I think I never really understood, you know, when people used to say that, um, and I'm going to really butcher the paraphrasing, but when you put people under pressure, they, they perform their best. I'd heard this 
but I'd never really experienced that kind of crunch. But the first time I did that, the first second that I went to was actually Money 2020, which is a, one of the world's largest fintech events. And the, the, the weekend before that uh, conference is the Sackathon, Money 2020 Hackathon, which is all about fintech. So you've got sponsors like PayPal, Visa, uh, MasterCard, um, WorldPay, some of these companies. And uh, I showed up barely knowing anything about software. This was, I had I, I just begun my journey. So the only thing I knew was how to make a, a very simple HTML, CSS website, which is not useful to make a functional prototype. So I ended up going there with, uh, with friends and all I did the whole hackathon was sit next to a developer who knew what he was doing. And I was just, I just asked him questions after questions after questions. I was like, okay, what is this? What is a database? How do I connect to a database? What should I learn? What is, what are you doing here? Like, I was just like constantly questioning him. And this was some developer who worked at a company called uh, Modo Payments, which is um, uh, a really great fintech company out of uh, uh, Texas. And the guy was so helpful. Uh, he just walked me through everything and I just made notes and then what I would do is he would tell me something and then I would go back to my seat and I would open up a course or a YouTube video and I would watch it. The whole hackathon was just a learning experience. The second time we came to that same hackathon the year after, we ended up winning the hackathon. So you imagine the journey from me not knowing anything to us winning the hackathon that whole year was just grinding away at software and learning the different ways things are built. And I just loved that process of, of working so deeply and just so focused that the next year we knew what we wanted to do. We, we kind of came up with the idea beforehand and uh, everyone in the, in the team was, was, we all kind of knew each other, all friends uh, in college, we all traveled together and uh, we ended up building um, a restaurant's payment application. So what you see now, I mean, um, I guess COVID, uh, you're seeing now these QR code menus, right, everywhere. Well, the idea that we had was actually using beacon technology. So. Bluetooth beacons are kind of these uh, transmitters. All they do, their entire job is to just transmit one ID. It's like one identifier for that particular uh, beacon. So kind of, you know how you have uh, the Apple AirTags? Um, that's basically a Bluetooth beacon because all that knows is to send out its ID and the iPhone's doing all the heavy lifting. Um, so the idea that we had was, okay, when you move into, go into, go into a restaurant and you, you eat, and particularly in the US with the whole the tipping system, it takes, it's a nightmare to really do all the math and uh, settle the check and kind of leave. We ended up designing the system where um, the restaurant would have just one Bluetooth beacon on, on the door and you would walk in uh, and as soon as you sit down, you get a notification on your phone that just asks you, uh, first of all, it says, hey, welcome to this restaurant. And then it just asks you one question, which is, are you going to be paying for your meal today? Because you might be with some friends and maybe one of you is treating the other one. So you can, all you have to say is yes or no. Once that's done, the system automatically integrates with the restaurant's uh, POS system. And now you're, you're uh, at the restaurant, you order your food, you eat. And then once you're done, you kind of just get up and leave. And the payment happens automatically because it's all integrated. Um, the restaurant knows exactly what you got because it's they, their POS system manages all of that. And we've already got your information and your identification was done the moment you walked in. So it was a seamless experience. Now we had this concept in mind. We show up at the hackathon and the hackathon usually starts at 11 a.m. Uh, on a Saturday and ends same time on a Sunday. As soon as 11 a.m. hit, all of us knew what we had to do and all of us knew uh, what to do even. I mean, we had learned the skills over the past year. So I was building the backend, which is all the database and the, the backend server. And uh, my friend was building the, the mobile app. And 
I believe around like usually it takes teams like even until the next morning to finish the product. We were so focused. We finished our entire product by like 7 p.m. And now we've got so much time. So we ended up doing this really cool uh, presentation. And of course, we're business students. So we still like made a kick ass um, presentation on on what the market opportunity is. How can this be deployed? How this would decrease the wait time at restaurants, decrease revenue, all that stuff. We even went to the extent of going to the, so this happens in Vegas, the hackathon. So next morning, we actually showed up at restaurants on the strip. We pitched the idea to the restaurants, got some testimonials and put that into the deck. So now we've got a working product. We've got customer testimonials. We've got all the market study done all in 24 hours. So we show up to the, uh, and then once 11 o'clock on, on Sunday hits, you kind of go up and you do your first demo to the judges, round one um, in a way. And if they like you there, then you go on to the big stage. And this happens, the, the event happens in the Venetian uh, in Vegas, which is, and the exhibition center that they have is huge. And I mean, the, the stage that they had uh, built because Money 2020, as I mentioned, is the largest FinTech event in the world in terms of conferences. So we had this massive stage. Now we're sitting in the crowd waiting for, waiting to find out whether we got in into the kind of the, the final event. And I remember that rush uh, when they announced our name, just going crazy that one year ago, we didn't know anything. And now we're going to be presenting on stage in front of like 5,000 people. Like, I don't even know what it was. Like, it was crazy. Um, and uh, yeah, so we go up, we present. Uh, it was great. And yeah, that was a, a really, really amazing experience. And that's when I uh, fell in love with software. And actually, after this hackathon is when we launched the company, uh, the, the software development company is called Jin, uh, G-I-N-N. That was the name of the company. We, we, because we, all of us, uh, we fell in love with software and we're like, we want to do this for people. So that was the first kind of inspiration. And the second hackathon that I did was actually in Singapore uh, in 2019. That was a sustainability hackathon. Um, so by then I, I kind of considered myself a, a veteran in the hackathon space because I'd done a lot more after the, the one in Vegas. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I kind of knew exactly what I wanted. Um, and yeah, we ended up building this really cool system for, um, it was called carbon wallet. It was a way to kind of track your carbon emissions and also for companies to track their carbon emissions and, and create this whole marketplace, which was really cool. Uh, we ended up meeting, um, uh, the CTO of Tamasek, which is one of the largest, uh, investment, uh, funds in the world, uh, owned by the Singapore government. We had dinner with the CTO and, and the CIO, because they, they love the product and they wanted to meet us. And so it's a cra- crazy experience. So I think the hackathons for anyone who's looking to get into, not only get into software, but someone who wants to learn how to be in this time crunch and come up with ideas and build products and work with people. I think, I, I mean, I cannot recommend hackathons enough to get that exposure because I knew absolutely nothing uh, about software. And I mean, having done those hackathons gave me the confidence to do so much more. Um, uh, the ability to think on my feet and come up with ideas. And um, and even today in my job, uh, when I'm speaking to a founder, I'm able to connect on a product level. Um, it's not just, I'm not just asking them questions about, uh, tell me about your cost of acquisition and all of those metrics, which yes, I do. But I also want to geek out about, tell me your stack, you know, what are you built on? Like all that stuff, which is, which is really cool. That's an incredible story. Um, going from literally zero to one um <laughs> and i think it's a great lesson just for people to, to hear it and kind of understand that you can go from no understanding to really excelling like you guys did within the space of a year 
Um, and so I'd love to transition to venture capital, which is what you're doing now at Blue Astro Capital. Um, and so after hearing about these experiences with you being an entrepreneur and in college, how did that translate into the work that you do now? You just mentioned it a little bit about how you can look at a founder's product and have a deeper, much deeper understanding of what they're building, how they're building it, and then a little bit on the marketing and spend side. Um, but we'd love to hear how those experiences translate into what you do now. Yeah, um, I would say it's, it translates in ways that I, I wouldn't have expected. Uh, I think on, on the hackathon front, uh, as, as I mentioned, what it allows me to do is, um, is first of all, appreciate good work. Uh, when I see hustle, I can recognize it, right? Um, I think that's the first thing. I think from my uh, journey of being an entrepreneur, I very much relate to the challenges that they're having. So for example, it's very easy uh, as an investor uh, or being on the investor side to criticize uh, a founder when the traction is not enough or um, where they're spending too much or they're making mistakes. And But when I see that, a part of me also thinks, what would I have done? Like I have this tendency every time I'm on a, on a call with a founder, after the call, I always think to myself, what would I do in that situation? Because having done the, or having, I guess, been through that journey, I know what it's like to uh, not have all the answers. So it's unrealistic and kind of unfair for me to expect uh, any founder that I speak to to have all the answers. Uh, so I kind of keep that, uh, use that to keep my um, uh, myself in check and not uh, kind of take everything for granted. Uh, not every picture is going to be perfect and they're not going to have all the answers. You have to also be ready to roll up your own sleeves as investors and be ready to support um, the teams in any way you can. So I think there's lots of learnings, direct and indirect, that I now apply to what I do. I think that's an extremely mature mindset. And I worked in venture capital for a summer after the year of my freshman year in college. And um, it was a great experience, but I think that a lot of investors, and this is somewhat well known in the industry, is the people that were entrepreneurs first and then became investors are the real, real people that you want to be chasing for guidance and advice because, like you just said, they've been through it. Um, and I would love to hear about the firm you're working at. So tell me, like, what is Blue Ashra? I'm very interested in it and admire what you guys are doing. And would just love to hear like the basics on like, what do you guys focus on in terms of the type of the areas you focus on and then also what stage you guys focus on. And then are there any other details you feel like should fill in the gaps about what it means to, to work at Blue Asheville? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the best way I can put it is I'll first of all, I'll give you the, the PR version, right? Blue Ashra Capital is an early stage VC fund, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, investing in Series A, like all of those. Um, uh, I guess that's the, that's the PR version of it, right? We are a VC fund investing in Series A level deals. So between one to $5 million in, in, in some of the areas such as food, environment, health, and money. And what that really means, if I were to break it down, is... Traditional VC, I mean, I guess traditional is not the right word, but a lot of VCs that you see out there, the industries that they've focused on is uh, enterprise SaaS, uh, consumer goods, um, you know, any of these internet technologies, e-commerce. These are kind of the traditional uh, uh, industries that you hear about when you, when you think VC. Um, 
I think software for the for a long time has ruled the VC ecosystem because you get kind of astronomical returns on capital because there's no or basically zero marginal uh, cost of uh, product. Once you build it out, you replicate and you've got one product that's being used by a million customers. But in industries that we are in, I'll break it down for you. So in the four areas, the first one is food and agriculture. So within this, we're focused on farm level productivity and post-harvest value chains. So that includes things such as sustainable agriculture practices, agri-tech, um, and then those kinds of uh, industries. But then on a post-harvest, there's so many issues and problems and opportunities to work in, such as um, you know food processing. For example, if a farmer is selling bananas, they're making decent money. But if they then process that to banana chips or dried bananas, then you get a lot more money and the shelf life goes up and they now have a global market instead of just the local market because bananas by themselves are perishable. But if you put them, turn them into chips, flush them with nitrogen, pack them in a, in a chips packet, they can last for months. And, and so I think these kinds of industries are, are very, very interesting because first of all, food chains have over time uh, been just the value has been going down uh, is the best way I can put it. We're not eating the best food these days. So first of all, getting healthy foods into uh, people's hands and also helping the farmers actually get more income, especially in, in emerging economies such as India, where a big chunk of the population is still in farming. So to actually, if you want to raise the, the GDP per capita, you have to invest in, in these kinds of businesses, not just because you, you have a feel for it. We're not an impact fund. We're not channeling capital just because we, we feel for it or we feel like uh, this is the right thing to do, but there's genuinely a lot of money and opportunity to be made in these businesses. These are kind of the businesses of the future. So the first pillar is food and agri. Second pillar for us is energy and environment. And this is kind of the talk of the town. Uh, and I'm going to use two buzzwords, forgive me, uh, decarbonization and circular economy. And these are kind of the key areas we're focusing on, which means anything that's got to do with uh, capturing carbon from the atmosphere or using uh, carbon um, uh, in a way where you're actually making carbon negative product or you're actually doing something that's reducing carbon emissions by itself. So industries like carbon capture and utilization. So you might have heard about lots of companies that are doing ambient CO2 capture, direct air capture, or even like um, targeted CO2 capture in from chimneys of factories. So here's an interesting issue that, uh, that we kind of discovered is even if we were to capture all of the excess CO2 in the atmosphere, which is causing the heating up and all of those other issues, the market for CO2 by itself annually is not large enough uh, to take in all the excess CO2 that we would capture. So even if, and theoretically, we got all the excess CO2, there's, we don't know what to do with it. There's two options. What people in Norway are doing, country, uh, companies in Norway, for example, are doing is they pump it deep underground. This is carbon sequestration. What, what they expect is if you pump it underground, it forms, it reacts with the, the rocks and kind of solidifies and turns into carbonates and minerals. But the issue is that's very, very expensive to do. The more exciting pathway for us is utilizing that CO2. So CO2 happens to be a, a great industrial feedstock for multiple things. So you can actually combine uh, carbon dioxide with hydrogen and make methanol, which has a huge market. You can combine carbon dioxide with ammonia uh, to make fertilizer, which got, which has another uh, big market, or construction chem, uh, construction materials or kerosene. So essentially what you're doing is you've got captured CO2 from industries, 
combine that with some other uh, chemical and you make a useful product. So this utilization of CO2 is a very interesting story. And then on the circular economy front, I think increasingly these days we're seeing all of these industries um, where there's so much waste in, in the entire supply chain and the production process. And if we're able to extract value from waste, I think we've actually, we're actually bringing back a lot of lost potential and lost revenue. So we're investing in technologies that are able to use um, waste from industries and make a lot of valuable goods out of it. To give you an example, right now we're working on a, on a technology to convert waste orange peels into activated carbon that goes into supercapacitors. So everyone's talking about the EV revolution. A big part of that is supercapacitors, which are the thing that gives you the instant charge and discharge for your instant torque. Like you see the uh, Tesla ludicrous mode, that's a supercapacitor because a battery doesn't know how to give you charge that quick. But the, the heart of a supercap is the activated carbon. That's the thing that allows the electrons to go very quickly from one side to the other. So we're making that from orange peels, which is really cool to see. So that's on the, I mean, really exciting work that's happening on, um, on the energy front, hydrogen, green diesel, so on and so forth. The third pillar for us is health and wellness. Here we're looking at um, preventive and reactive care. So traditionally, a lot of money has been channelized into reactive care. Everything you see these days is here's a symptom, here's your solution, right? Uh, preventive care is now uh, kind of gaining traction because we've realized that if you can actually uh, have the intervention early on, you don't need to spend the billions of dollars later on to actually come up with cures if, you've, if you're living healthy. So we're investing everything from preventive care like Ayurveda or any of these traditional medicine to modern medicine uh, in pharma APIs or uh, telemedicine, medical equipments, uh, so on and so forth. And the final piece for us is money and finance. Here is basically all the aspects of the financial ecosystem. So lending, payments, insurance, um, wealth management, so on and so forth. So if I were to tie it all together, when you look at food, environment, health, and money, these are kind of the foundational building blocks of a modern society, uh, kind of the core needs of society in a way. So that's how we've come up with the thesis is we want to allocate capital to areas that have a, it's not a want, it's not a nice to have, it's kind of a must have. Uh, so that's kind of the, the thesis behind uh, Flourish for Capital. That's extremely exciting. And I think how you described it and makes it even more exciting for me is like, this is literally the future of business and opportunity because like we've seen that software is, is great and it's, it's helping people, but it's also extremely saturated. Um, this is the point, and I think that comment is kind of showing the pivotal nature of where we are and how these businesses really are the future um, for everyone. If you really want to have gains on um, your investments, if you want to create change in what you do, it's, it's kind of the pillars of what you mentioned and then some, obviously, there's other things going on in society that are being built and worked on. Um, and so I think it's a really, really interesting hypothesis that you guys have. And I'd love to touch on a little bit of your story, which you guys mentioned, um, which is the difference between needs and wants, um, yeah. and how that is kind of reflected in people building products for wants that are things that aren't kind of core to themselves and their being, and then yeah. people building products for their needs, which is things that guys that the things that you guys are, are building. Um, so could you talk to me about, I think it would be great to hear about the perception that people have, especially investors who are investing in your fund about that hypothesis, because I think a lot of people, like you said, are looking for that software scalable, 
you know, once you build it, it just goes up from there. It's just <laughs> users and money and all that stuff. And so how are people perceiving you guys going into a business that is leading edge um, and maybe taking on a different set of risks than traditional VC funds? That's a great question. So I'll, I'll break it up into two uh, kind of sections. The first thing I'll say, uh, investors that have been investing in software uh, for kind of their whole lives, they understand the world in a particular way, as you said, uh, build a product, get users, your MRR, ARR, like, you know, get your DAUs up. I mean, just using <laughs> buzzwords at this point, but that's kind of the, the model, right? You scale it. But, uh, and I think Peter Thiel puts it in a really interesting way. He says, there's two kinds of worlds. There's a world of bits and the world of atoms. Traditionally, VC has been focused on the world of bits. But as soon as you move into the world of atoms, which is very much science-driven, like hardcore physics, chemistry, these are very different kinds of businesses. You don't, at least immediately, you don't see that scalable opportunity because it's not, you don't think that here's a product, it's not just going to magically reach a million users because it's a physical, tangible product. So the first things that, uh, that you know, our investors are looking at is, they understand that these businesses have to be built differently and they have to be looked not from an angle of impact only because here's, here's what I really think about it is when you, when you're trying to solve, uh, as you said, a need, right? There's two ways to look at it. Either you could say, okay, uh, philanthropic capital is there, right? If you're solving the really, really core needs of certain parts of society, philanthropic capital does a good job. But when you're looking at impact that needs to scale, you cannot only depend on people's goodwill or their CSR budgets or whatever else they've allocated to doing good, right? And I'm doing air quotes right now, right? And I think what, what you have to realize is if you've got a product or, or service that's actually solving a core need, which it could be a hardware startup, it could be a deep tech company, you have to also realize that you have to raise capital from mainstream investors. People have to look at you not from the angle of, oh, I'm going to invest because they're doing good, but they have to invest really because they feel, okay, this is going to make a lot of money. This is going to be huge business. And that's how we're, we've positioned it. And that's what's excited our LPs even is you look at a company and you say, okay, impact is great, but the real base of it is this is a scalable business that's going to give you great returns. And you know it's going to do our investors and us a lot of good. It's going to make us a lot of money. Impact just happens to be uh, a kicker for those who really care for it. But if you take the angle of impact first, there's unfortunately this, this mindset and kind of perception where you see this trade-off between impact and profitability. Uh, and uh, you tell, go to an LP and say, hey, I'm launching an impact fund. Some that really care for it will get really excited, but others that don't will probably think, okay, impact fund, probably not going to make that much money. And I think we want to really break that idea down and, and kind of uh, break that perception because if there is a core need and uh, we all learn this is business school is if you're solving a need of a customer, that's a good business. So why is it that when we're building businesses that solve needs and not wants, we're not seeing capital allocated like that today. I mean, you look at all of the, the companies raising capital, you've got so many software companies that we could really do without, I mean, realistically, but they're raising so much capital because there's money to be made. They're infinitely scalable. There's no marginal cost of, uh, of serving a customer. But I think so, that's the first angle. You have to realize that you have to make this business attractive to everyone, not just impact investors. And our LPs understand that. And we've done a good job of portraying that. 
I think the second aspect is, as, as I was saying, the transition from the world of bits to the world of atoms is these kind of businesses, you have to really understand the technology and understand the risks that you're taking. I think you brought up a really uh, important point, which is these businesses have a different kinds of risk, which is your cost of experimentation is higher, right? In software, if I, if I make a mistake or the product breaks, I just kind of go back to GitHub and I roll back my, my code base and I deploy, right? Instant. There's no cost really except my time. But when you look at a, a, a deep tech company, they must have spent months in a lab building a product. If something fails, they're set back a few months. They've lost a lot of money. So the experimentation cost is high. So what we've kind of done is realized, okay, this has to be de-risked. And the, the great dilemma in a way is on one hand, you've got lots of innovators, scientists, uh, you know, students everywhere in research labs working on game-changing ideas. I mean, how many times have you read on Mashable.com that, or, or any of these publications that scientists have come up with a new material or some, some really exciting thing, but you barely see any of that out in the world. And I think that the sad reality is you have lots of ideas that live and die in the lab. And on the other hand, you've got investors who want to allocate capital to deep tech, clean tech, all these areas, but they don't have the know-how. And for them, the risk is too great. They don't really know what to do with it. How do you de-risk that? So we realized that there's a gap, right? You have to bridge the innovators and the investors, and you have to allow the innovator space to bring their ideas out into the market. So what we've actually done is launched a program, which is our early stage deep tech incubator, um, where what we do is we invite innovators and say, okay, you've got a proof of concept at a lab scale, show it to us, right? And if, if it's something that really excites us, we want to support you, we then invest in a kind of a, a scaling of the technology. So we set up a larger a pilot unit, then maybe a commercial size pilot unit, and we work with our industry partners to validate that. And once it's ready, we actually spin it off into a company and then bring it to our fund or other investors, just like any other deal. Because here's, here's what's happening in this ecosystem is you've got the biggest investors. I mean, you talk everyone from Amazon to Tamasek, everyone's, or Microsoft even, is announcing these initiatives and funds invest in decarbonization and these kind of clean tech areas. What's happening is they're launching huge funds. So if you say a billion dollar fund in decarbonization, there's barely any deals that can take a $50 million minimum investment size. There's very few deals that can do that. So you actually have to go a lot earlier and build these companies from the ground up. So uh, yeah, those are the kind of the two ways we've positioned it is on one hand, understand that you have to position it as not an impact story but uh, a mainstream business story, which just happens to have impact on top of it. On the other hand, it's to realize that the world of Adams requires understanding, working with the founders, working with the innovators, giving them space to build the business and actually bringing them along in the wealth creation journey. Because I think the world does need more deep tech and, and uh, kind of these kinds of business. So we're playing our role. Uh, hopefully it pans out. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you guys are doing a phenomenal job at playing a role. And I think... What would be interesting to hear and wrap up with is, so this is where you guys are at now. Um, and as we just kind of talked about, you have the traditional, again, air quotes, venture capital industry that is really focused on software. Um, so you guys are positioning yourself in a different way. Um, so I'd love to hear about two things. One is how do you think you guys are going to evolve with the ecosystem of venture capital? Do you think they're going to catch up? Do you think they won't? Um, and then also just for, I guess, yourself and then the firm, how do you guys see your future and how do you see that manifesting? 
I think the ecosystem is going to catch up uh, because these investors, they know and they, they hear their LPs. And I think everyone is realizing that this, this, these are the industries of the future. So I think the traditional VCs, and I'm calling them traditional, uh, uh, not to be kind of uh, throw shade or anything, but that's just how, uh, you know, what they're operating in. I think they will catch up. I think what's, what's going to take them time to do is build the, the thesis and the know-how. Because every great investor, they realize that to, to really pick the right founders, of course, there's luck involved, but you also have to develop a thesis in the industries you invest in. So for some of these uh, guys that are traditionally been investing in, in software, they'll have to kind of mold their teams and mold the way that they look at businesses and how they fund and all of those things will have to evolve. Um, but I do think that they will catch up. On the other hand, I think funds like ours, um, and I think now you're seeing you know the birth of funds like this, who are focusing on these areas, I think we will in some sense um, uh, be leading the way in, in at least the way we allocate capital and, and the kind of companies that we support. Uh, so I think the, the future for us looks very, very bright. I mean, and I'm very excited about the things we're doing because all of these areas are not only um, crucial for the way energy industries will pan out or uh, you know, uh, the climate change story will pan out, but it's also every government, every business, everyone's really looking for solutions in this area. So, I mean, we're working so closely with the with with various governments, a Singapore government, for example, where they realize that to really have an economy that's in the 21st century, you have to have aspects where you're bringing circular economy into it, not waste resources. You have to have carbon negative products. You have to have uh, you know, re- resilient healthcare systems. So I, I, you know, and the kind of feedback we've received from not only our investors, but also stakeholders, uh, other VC funds is they've been really uh, interested in the way that we've approached the industry and, and the themes that we've come up with. And we're very excited to work with uh, other investors who are also building in this space and kind of just grow the space overall, because this, these are the businesses um, that will lead us into the future and we need more and more capital to come in and support them uh, and really see the opportunity because I think software is here to stay. I think software is great. I mean, that's how I got into business. I have tremendous, tremendous respect and admiration for great software products, but I think also we cannot miss or dismiss the kind of scientific talent that we've created and we have right now um, around the world. And we really have to give them an opportunity to be part of the wealth creation journey because I mean, some of these uh, I mean, every PhD student, they spend years perfecting their craft. And more often than not, you hear this horror stories of someone coming along, ripping them off or taking their idea and kind of build a biz- building a business out of that. We really want to take them along in the journey uh, because only when scientists come along in the wealth creation journey, will we get more scientists to build businesses? And I think that's what we really need. It's, it kind of has to be a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, and someone has to start the cycle. Um, and I'm hoping that, uh, you know, we get a chance to do that and more investors join us along the way. I think I can, I see that happening down the line in the future. Um, Arpit, thank you so much for this conversation. It was extremely rich. And I think it'll be one of the interviews that, I and people look back on and, and say, wow, like this, this guy, this firm was extremely, extremely ahead of the times. Um, and so I hope that people listening really took the time to, to sit there and be a sponge and soak this in and realize that this is the new reality. And this is where money is going and where the economy is going. 
and where our people are going. And so I think this is extremely valuable for me and for people listening. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Lucas. Such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And that wraps up today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, follow us on LinkedIn at Why It Matters and on Instagram at why underscore it underscore matters underscore. You will find our community of guests and listeners who are forming the next generation of changemakers. Come join the group of people leading humanity into the future. I'll see you all soon.